Friday 14th of November 2014. This is HPR episode 1640 entitled Symmetric VS, a symmetric encryption and is part of the series Privacy and Security. It is hosted by Ahuka and is about 21 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to Zwilnik at Zwilnik.com or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is, this episode looks the two kinds of encryption keys and why to use each one. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. This is Ahuka, welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another in our ongoing series on security and privacy. Uh, And this is going to be an episode where we look at some basics of encryption. Is uh, symmetric versus asymmetric? Uh, So that's going to set us up to get into some other interesting things like SSL certificates and all of that. Now, previously we looked at public key encryption which is also called asymmetric encryption because it uses two different keys for the encryption and decryption. This allows us to solve one of the biggest problems in secure encrypted communication, which is key distribution. Because the public key can be freely distributed, you don't need to maintain security around the process of distributing keys. Symmetric encryption, on the other hand, relies on a shared key that is used for both encryption and decryption. An example of this is the one-time pad, where you printed up a pad of paper that contained various keys, and each one was used only once. As long as no one can get the key, it's unbreakable. But the big weakness with those is key distribution. How do you get the one-time pad into the hands of your correspondent? And you would need to do this with separate one-time pads for each person you needed to communicate with. These are the kinds of problems that made asymmetric encryption so popular. Finally, symmetric key crypto cannot be used to reliably create a digital signature. The reason should be clear. If I have the same secret key you used to sign a message, I can alter the message use the shared secret key myself, and claim that you sent it. There is a downside, though, to asymmetric encryption. It requires a good deal more in computational resources to perform asymmetric encryption and decryption. Symmetric crypto, on the other hand, is much more efficient. That is why, in practice, the two are actually combined. When you use GPG to encrypt a message you use the public key of the person you are writing to. Well, that much we already covered. But what are you encrypting? It turns out you are encrypting the symmetric key 
that was actually used to encrypt the message itself. Yes, a symmetric key is used for efficiency, but we solved the key distribution problem by using an asymmetric key to encrypt the symmetric key. So when someone sends you a message using your public key, you use your private key to decrypt the symmetric key, then use the symmetric key to decrypt the message itself. This is the best combination of security and efficiency in your communication. Now, there are standards for all of these things, right? So let's take a look at some of the symmetric encryption standards. First one is something called DES, or Data Encryption Standard. Uh, and this was the, the first popularly used one. It was developed by IBM for the U.S. government. Now, without going into a highly technical description, DES employed some techniques that pop up frequently in cryptography the block cipher, and XOR. In simple terms, a block cipher operates on a fixed-length block of bits to transform them in some way. And XOR, which stands for exclusive OR, provides one of the most common transformations. XOR, or exclusive OR, in logic means that either A is true or B is true, but not both. If used in circuit design, if either A or B is sending a signal, the signal goes through. But if both are sending a signal, nothing goes through. When used in cryptography, what XOR does is use a key that is XORed with the message block in such a way that if both the message and the key have a zero in that position, the result is zero. If the message has a 1 and the key has a 0, the result is a 1. If the message has a 0 and the key has a 1, the result is a 1. And if the message has a 1 and the key has a 1, the result is 0. One way to think about it is that it is essentially binary addition without the carry part. In binary addition, 1 plus 1 equals 10, which is the binary form of 2, so you write down the 0 and carry the 1. In XOR, you just throw away the carry part altogether. Understanding how this works begins with the coding. Recall that we distinguished between codes and ciphers earlier in this series. A code is just a one-to-one -one transform of information from one scheme to another. An example is Morse code. There's nothing secret about it, and a transformation usually is to render information in a way that fits the medium. In computers, everything is ones and zeros, so there is a code that takes our letters and turns them into binary digits. In fact, there are several, but for the purpose of illustration, I will use ASCII, which is the American Standard Code for Information Interchange. In ASCII, there is a numerical equivalent for every letter. I will do a very simple example, the word cat. I can see from a table on my Wikipedia page for ASCII, on, I have links to all of this in the show notes, that C is 1100011. A is 1100011. And T is 1110100. 
So the word cat is represented in binary as one one zero 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 one 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 zero 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 one 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 zero one zero zero. Now the other thing I need is a key. That needs to be a secret in real life, but I'll tell you, my key is going to be dog. And by a similar process, I can find that dog is re represented in binary as one one zero zero one zero zero one one zero one 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 zero zero one one one. Well, what happens when I XOR them? Well, this is probably easier if you have it written down or I have it on my web page, and the, the link is in the show notes. But position by position, the message has a 1 in the first position, the key has a 1 in the first position, so the result is a 0. Message has a 1 in the second position, the key has a 1 in the second position, the result is 0. Message has a 0 in the third position, so does the key. So the result is again zero, and so on. Now, the reason this is useful as an encryption method is that if you XOR the key with the result, you get back the original message. I, I would suggest you either do an example, like I've done, or um, you know, check out an explanation of it somewhere. Or you can just trust me on this one. But yes, if you XOR the key with the result, you get back the original message. Now, in constructing an encryption algorithm, all right, an algorithm is a, a series of discrete steps that you go through. So you would take a number of such methods and combine them to get something that is secure. So in the data encryption standard, the block size is 64 bits. The key is also 64 bits except that one bit from each byte was devoted to parity checking. So the effective key length is actually 56 bits. In creating the DES standard, you would see that processes were repeated for multiple rounds of transformation, which is common. So the final output could be the result of multiple XORs and other such stuff. But the reason it is symmetric is, like we saw with the XOR process, if you have the key, you can reverse all the steps in the algorithm and get back the original message. Now, DES is really the beginning of modern cryptography. Bruce Schneier said about it, DES did more to galvanize the field of cryptanalysis than anything else. Now there was an algorithm to study. DES became the standard against which all other algorithms would be compared. But it was not the final word by any means. As we have seen previously, this is an arms race, and methods and technology continually involve. DES was found to have some weaknesses, particularly in the key length. 56 bits was just too small as computers got better. The NSA had in fact tried to limit it to 48 bits, but resistance from the cryptographic community resulted in this slightly higher length. Nevertheless, in 1999, a DES key was cracked by brute force methods in 22 hours, and the standard has since been removed. Triple DES attempts to solve the weaknesses of the 56-bit key in DES 
by using three independent 56-bit keys which are used in a repeated process. Each block of the message is encrypted three times, once each for the three keys. If done this way, it is generally regarded as secure, and NIST regards it as safe through the year 2030. On the other hand, there are theoretical attacks, which, though not considered feasible with current technology, have led to a new standard. The next step, the Advanced Encryption Standard, AES. The Advanced Encryption Standard was adopted by NIST in 2001. This is now considered the best available symmetric encryption. It employs a cipher called Rheindahl, which is a play on the names of the two inventors, Vincent Ryman and Joan Damon. Uh, so they combine those. It, it's, uh, I think, Dutch. So spelled R-I-J-N-D-A-E-L. Now, this version of Rheindahl used in AES has a block size of 128 bits and key sizes of 128 192 or 256 bits. And in general, it can be referred to as AES-128, AES-192, or AES-256, depending on the key length. And the most secure would be AES-256. As with other symmetric ciphers, each block is subjected to repeated rounds of transformation to get to the encrypted text. Now, one thing you may have noticed in the above discussion of symmetric encryption is the lack of discussion of entropy in the process. It is not needed here, because the only thing that matters is that the key is agreed, not that it is random. But in asymmetric key encryption, entropy is essential. It is the combination of the entropy with the one-way function that makes it work. One-way functions, as you may recall from our earlier discussion, are functions that can easily be computed in one direction, but are computationally infeasible in reverse. Right now, there appear to be three types that are known and can be used in cryptography, but we should recognize research is always ongoing and other types of things could come up. So, what are the three that we know about? The first one is multiplying large prime numbers. That's what RSA does. Um, the second one is discrete logarithm. And the third one is elliptic curve. Now, I'm not going to dig into the mathematics. They're more than I can handle on all of these. You probably need something like a PhD in, in math to make sense of this stuff. Or maybe I'm just not that bright. But here's the basics of each. Okay, prime number factorization, which, as I said, that's used in RSA encryption. Two large prime numbers are found and multiplied together to get a product. Multiplying them together is simple for a computer, but decomposing the product to the two primes you started with is computationally infeasible so far as we know. Of course, since RSA is widely used, it has sparked intense interest in approaches to factorization, so this may get weakened over time. And of course, with improvement in computer technology, what now appears to be a difficult problem may become much simpler in the future. But for now, RSA appears to be secure. The role of entropy in this case lies in finding the prime numbers. 
Generally, they should each be in the neighborhood of 1,024 digits. And for security, they should not only be random, but not near each other. With the large prime numbers found and multiplied, the product is used to generate other prime numbers, which help form the public key and the private key. The point here is that these are just two keys, such that one key cannot decrypt anything it itself encrypted, but can decrypt anything its complementary key encrypted. So you could, in theory, use either one as the private key. It's not particularly privileged. In fact, using the public key to decrypt something encrypted with the private key is the principle behind digital signatures, which we will discuss in our next lesson. Now, a discrete logarithm involves finding an integer that solves a logarithmic equation. Uh, this is the approach used in El-Gamal encryption and the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, among many uses. Choosing the particular numbers for the logarithmic equation is where the entropy comes in. Diffie-Hellman key exchange is used for perfect forward secrecy, among other uses, and that's definitely something we will eventually get around to discussing. Elliptic curve cryptography builds on the discrete logarithm approach. A curve with the right properties is chosen, then a point on that curve, and the problem becomes finding the discrete logarithm of that point. Generally, the curve is chosen from a small number of appropriate curves that have been agreed upon by the crypto community. NIST has recommended 15 curves as suitable. Entropy enters when one chooses the point on the curve that will be used. Elliptic curve cryptography is usually faster and more efficient than RSA or general discrete logarithm approaches. However, it now appears that at least one of the curves selected was chosen by NSA to have deliberate weaknesses, so that particular curve is now deprecated. The larger question of whether any NIST standard can be trusted, given the NSA's involvement, is still open. So, this wraps up a, a somewhat more technical discussion of encryption methods, which I hope will set us up to look at some other security problems and solutions. So, this is Ahuka signing off for Hacker Public Radio and reminding you, as always, to support free software. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.